All right, good to see everybody. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 4. So we are currently, if you're a regular here, you know we are currently studying Revelation, of course, but we are currently in chapter 4, which opens up with John the Apostle and, of course, the entire church of Jesus Christ being caught up to heaven in the rapture. And John immediately begins to describe what he sees. Now, it's a little difficult because he is seeing things that go beyond his comprehension and, of course, his ability to accurately describe them. He's a first century guy trying to describe probably 21st century things that he is seeing. So, but let's jump in again. Chapter 4, let's start with verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices." Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf or an ox, actually. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." And so as the cherubim worship, the 24 elders who represent the church join in, casting their crowns before the throne. Um, I did a little research uh, to discover that the Bible actually speaks of five crowns available to believers in Christ. Uh, the first one is the crown of righteousness, which is given to those who love his appearing, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 which means they are watching for his appearing. Uh, in not a few places, in not a few places, Jesus Christ commanded his church to be watching, to be vigilant, right? And of course, that's what prophecy does. It allows us to know what's coming so we can be watching for these things because as they begin to take place, we know that Jesus' coming is even nearer. So crown of righteousness is given to those who long for, love, his appearing, and I got to tell you folks, the more I see what's happening in our country politically, the more I'm longing for Jesus' return. 
that he would come and take charge of this mess and bring about a kingdom of true righteousness, right? Number two, the crown of life, uh, which is given to those who passionately love Jesus, James 1, verse 12. Uh, the next is the crown of glory, which is given for faithful service to Jesus, 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And then there's the soul winner's crown, given to those who share their faith faithfully, um, being a witness for Christ, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. And then finally, there might be others. These are just five mentioned in the, in the New Testament. And number five, the martyr's crown, uh, given to those who lay down their life in service to Jesus, Revelation 2, verse 10. Now, here's the thing about these crowns. They are given as rewards for service, right? Our salvation is free. We don't work for our salvation. But once we are free... The things we do for the Lord, the work we do for Him, earns us rewards. Rewards, okay? And, you know, Paul the Apostle was a man's man. And he used uh, sports metaphors a lot. Obviously, he liked sports. And uh, when he wrote to the Corinthians, uh, the, uh, Corinth uh, hosted what was called the Isthmus Games. And they... Uh, rivaled the Olympic Games, uh, which took place about 40 miles to the east in Athens. But the Isthmus Games uh, were hosted in Corinth. And, and Paul picks up on that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Then he goes on in verse 25 to say, when the world competes in the games, okay, these athletic competitions, um, all the hard work, all the discipline, all the sacrifice, uh, they do it to receive a laurel crown, okay? It's a laurel wreath that was placed on the heads of the winners, okay? Um, in three days, it started to get brown, and by the end of the week, all the leaves had fallen off. And that's basically, it wasn't, that of course wasn't what they were competing for. It was the prestige of knowing that they had come in first place. But we, an imperishable crown, they, all that hard work for a perishable crown, but we serve Jesus for an imperishable crown, a crown that will never fade away, right? And Paul says, look, when an athlete trains for a competition they don't say to themselves i hope i come in fifth today or i hope i come in last today that's my goal come in last no everyone wants to come in first or why bother okay why bother and so paul says look in the christian life the same thing if we're going to compete if we're going to you know go for it let's go for it let's all try to win in other words put your whole heart into it uh, if the world can be that disciplined for a perishable crown, how much more so should we for an imperishable crown? Now, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, again we read where the, uh, the cherubim and the 24 elders, they say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Notice, created, not evolved. Created, not evolved. 
And I'm also including in that theistic evolution, which many Christians have bought into because they're embarrassed of the creation story in Genesis. It sounds so ridiculous in their minds, uh, you know, that uh, how could anyone actually believe this? It must be a myth. And so they have tried to get the best of both worlds. They've tried to uh, maintain some semblance of being Bible-believing while at the same time capitulating to the scientific secular community because they don't want to look like, uh, you know, like simpletons, okay? And so they've embraced something called theistic evolution. What is that? Well, that's where God created the amoeba, the amoeba, and then it evolved. So God did create, but he created the amoeba and then let it evolve into all. See, isn't that neat? Doesn't that work well? No, it stinks. <laughs> that's not what the Bible says, okay? It doesn't say God created the amoeba. It says God created man out of the dust of the earth, fully formed, mature, and so on. Did Adam have a belly button? Probably. I don't know. Why Christians get tied up with these, I don't know. But, uh, you know, he was made uh, adult. He was made fully formed and so on. But notice it says here that in, in Psalm 100, verse 3, know that it is he who made us and not we ourselves. All right? But God created us. We read here in verse 11, for his will. The idea, though, is for his pleasure. His will is that we bring him pleasure. In fact, in the King James Version of Revelation 4.11, it reads this way, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Folks, this may come as a surprise, not to anybody in this room, okay, so understand that. This comes as a, as a surprise, a shock to many Christians today in the body of Christ that God doesn't exist, exist to make them happy. They exist to make Him happy. And if you get the order reversed, you're going to be miserable because you're always going to think God is letting you down. I mean, if you believe that God exists to make you happy, then when things happen that don't make you happy, God has let you down. And I don't see how you live your Christian life like that. I really don't, okay? Uh, it's backwards. It's backwards. Uh, God has created us for His pleasure, uh, to bring Him happiness and pleasure. That's our purpose, right? And we need to understand that. And what pleases the heart of God is worship. Worship. And not just actions. We're talking about a lifestyle. Uh, in John chapter 4, when Jesus said the Father is looking for what? Worship? He's looking for true what? Worshippers. Yes, who will give him worship. But it's not the actions per se. It's the lives of those who become true worshipers. That's what the Father is seeking after, right? And um, worship, as we studied and we looked at John 4, uh, worship was the purpose for which we were created. And you can check out John 4, verses 23 and 4 again. But God created us for worship. Now, we've talked about this before. I'm not going to belabor it. But, you know, a lot of Christians think, well, God saved us 
because he didn't want us going to hell. Well, he didn't want us going to hell, that's true. But that was not the primary reason he saved us. That was a blessed byproduct. The real reason God uh, created us and then saved us was to gather to himself a community of true worshipers. Those that would worship him in spirit and in truth forever and ever. And by the way, did you see it here where the four living creatures say day and night without rest, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Now, in our minds, we're thinking, don't they get bored? Whole, I mean, they, they don't stop day and night. Wouldn't they get bored? In heaven, you will not ever know boredom. I'm convinced the first time you praise God in heaven uh, it will be the same as the, the millionth time you praise him will be the same as the first time. Because in heaven, nothing gets old. Nothing gets worn out, okay? Uh, I don't know if we'll have possessions in heaven, but if we do, and you ask me, you know, can I borrow your old rake? If I ask you, can I borrow your old rake? Uh, we need rakes in heaven, I doubt it. But, you know, you, just to make a point, you say, no, you can't borrow my old rake. You can borrow my new rake because everything is going to be brand new constantly, all right? Um, this, this is a very important point, though. God created us because he wanted us to become true worshipers. Now, we, you know, he has to save us to do that. And of course, in saving us, he saved us from the fires of hell, which is a blessed byproduct of his ultimate goal, which was to make us true worshipers. Guys, everything exists for one reason, to bring God glory, uh, to please God by bringing him glory. Therefore, and this is important, to the extent you please him with your life uh, will be the extent to which you will fulfill your purpose in life and experience the fulfillment of experience the fulfillment and joy in the deepest part of your soul. People are like, they're empty uh, in, in our world. A lot of people are just very empty. Well, why is it? We talked about this Sunday. They're trying to, to stuff a God-shaped void, which is what God created us, with a God-shaped void in our hearts, with the stuff of the world. It can't fill that, right? Uh, what we need to understand is that we were created for a purpose. That purpose was to bring God glory. Part of that, of course, is to live worshipful lives. To, to be true worshipers. And by the way we live, we bring him glory. Yes, we offer him the actions of worship, but our life reflects, uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea of being true worshipers, right? And the more you fulfill the purpose which God created you, uh, the more you're going to experience the fulfillment, the joy, everything that God has designed. They're all byproducts that come uh, into our lives as we make him the focus. You pursue joy and fulfillment and all that as a direct pursuit, you'll be empty all, your whole life. If you pursue God, love him, worship him with your life, the byproduct will be great joy and great fulfillment. Guys, true spiritual worship is one of the greatest, if not the greatest activity we can engage in in our lives personally and in our church collectively. Very important. To worship means to ascribe worth, to ascribe worth, and is a contraction of the word worth-ship. I'm glad they shortened it. It's a little hard to say worth-ship, okay? So just worship. But the idea is you're ascribing to God worth, infinite worth, right? 
and uh, he's worthy then of our praise. Uh, our wor- he is worthy. Worthship is what we offer to him. But it means that we use uh, all that we are, all that we have. Everything we have has been given to us by God, right? Paul said in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship or your service of worship, some translations put it. The idea is that I am to give to God my whole life. When I, it says, Paul says, present your bodies. He's talking about the sum total of your life. All right. And I believe Paul had in mind the burnt offering. Remember in Leviticus, it lays out the different offerings. You had the burnt offering, you had the peace offering, the fellowship offering. Okay, The first one mentioned is the burnt offering. And that's where the animal was brought to God, given to the priest, which was then laid on the altar of sacrifice. And the animal, was, after it was killed, was completely burned up. Nothing was left. In the peace offering, you bring your animal to the priest, he would kill it, put it on the altar of sacrifice, and he would roast, uh, burn up some of it completely, and then roast the rest of it and give it to you, and you were supposed to go over somewhere and sit and eat that, uh, that peace offering because God got part, you were now enjoying part of it, and in that culture, to eat with somebody, you were becoming one with them. And that was the idea, you had peace with God, you were having fellowship. But the, the burnt offering was the offering of consecration where nothing was left. Uh, the entire animal was burned up. And, that, and I believe that's what Paul had in mind when he says, offer to God yourself as living sacrifices. Don't just give God part of your life uh, or you know, even most of your life. Give him all of your life. This is what he's after. This is what a true worshiper does. Uh, he puts God or she puts God first in all things, right? Very important. And... Um, now we understand that, giving God everything. When we worship Him, we worship Him for all that He is, all He has done, and even all He has yet to do. There's a lot of promises God's given us He hasn't fulfilled yet. And of course, ultimately, when we stand in heaven on the glassy sea, that will be, you know, all the promises in God's Word solidified, standing, they're all fulfilled. And we'll praise Him forever for His faithfulness. How do we worship? And understand there is a right way and a wrong way, okay? A right way and a wrong way. And since we have studied this numerous times in the past, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But because we are here, let me just touch on this. Uh, How do we worship? Well, again, according to John 4, why don't you turn there since we're talking so much about it. The only kind of worship the Father is seeking. The only kind he will accept is worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24, God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And notice how emphatic and definitive this injunction by Jesus is. Must worship. There's no ambiguity. There's no room for compromise or discussion or negotiation in the matter this must is absolute and final the only kind of worship the father will accept is first of all worship in spirit in spirit which is not coming into a church service where everyone's jumping around and hanging from the chandeliers and doing backflips off the pews 
In some churches, that's worshiping God in the Spirit. Well, that's not what Jesus had in mind. To worship God in Spirit means a person must be born of the Spirit. has to be a true born-again Christian. There can be no acceptable worship. I don't care how sincere. There can be no acceptable worship in God's eyes that isn't given up to Him from a heart that has been born again, whose sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. The Spirit is now inside of them, right? All of us who are born again. Uh, that's what it means to worship God in spirit. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, To Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So being born of the Spirit makes you a true worshiper. Now, there are many people who are not born of the Spirit that worship God. Not every unbeliever is a, a non-religious person. Yeah, many are. But there's a lot of folks who have not received Christ into their heart as their Lord and Savior, who, um, you know, go to church, offer God worship. Uh, the writer to the Proverbs says in Proverbs 15, verse 8, the sacrifice, remember now, talking about the old system, the old covenant, uh, the sacrifices brought to God under the old covenant were a form of worship. All right? That's what he's talking about. The sacrifice, the worship of the wicked, is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. So God is saying, I reject the worship, the sacrifices of those he calls the wicked. But they're not necessarily the worst of society. Anyone who does not have Jesus in their heart, in the eyes of God, is, falls into the category of the wicked. Uh, there is no peace for the wicked, says my God. They're like the waves Isaiah, remember Isaiah, like the waves of the troubled sea that have no rest day or night. They cast up mire dirt like the waves of the ocean. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. And he's just talking about any unbeliever there. So when unbelievers go to church and offer God worship and uh, maybe service and do all kinds of things in his name, if they're not born again, God does not accept any of it. On the day of judgment, Matthew 7, Jesus said, Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons and prophesied in your name and done many uh, good works in your name? And he will say, Jesus, I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, right? These people obviously weren't atheists. They were orthodox in their faith. They called Jesus Lord. In fact, they said, Lord, Lord. In the Greek, that's emphatic. That They were very committed to Jesus as Lord in some ways. Um, but they had not opened their heart. I, I know to, to Jesus that we're not born again. Again, being raised in the Catholic Church, I know Catholics that go to Mass every single day of the week. I would say they're zealous. I would say they're sincere. But God accepts none of it if they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by receiving Him into their heart as their Savior. And where the Spirit comes in, Right? Guys, no matter, no one, no matter how religious they are, can offer God acceptable worship, again, if they haven't been born of the Spirit, or if they're not genuine born-again Christians. And then once a person is born of the Spirit, in other words, once they're saved, the second thing Jesus said that the Father says is a must with regard to worship, they must worship God in truth, in truth which means according to the truth of God is revealed in his word. Turn to Matthew 15. 
Now, of course, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, but he's talking about the Jewish people in general. And uh, he quotes from Isaiah, where God said, Matthew 15, starting with verse 8, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what Jesus is, what God is saying here is, look, you can be sincere um, and draw, try to draw near to me with your words, your singing and, 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 and worship and all, but if you've embraced doctrines of men and have not you know, embraced my word, in other words, you're not approaching me, you're not living for me, you're not worshiping me according to the instructions and guidelines I have laid down in my word, well, then I reject it. Um, there, there's a lot of um, churches who teach a lot of things that are not in the Bible. These are doctrines of men. Uh, these are commandments that have been invented, you know, uh, by man. Uh, they sound pious, but um, God does not uh, accept uh, the, the commandments of men, okay? Uh, his word is the final authority, uh, and so on. And uh, turn to Romans 10 quickly. Because Paul really nailed this, I think, uh, speaking of the Jewish people. In Romans 10, starting with verse 2, Paul said, For I bear them witness, he's talking about Israel, the Jewish people, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, let me paraphrase, their own system of righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There it is. He's saying, "Look, the Jewish people have a zeal for God, but they have not. They have not let the law point them to the one the law was designed to point them to, which was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, the law was given to point people to Christ because people couldn't keep the law of God uh, in perfect uh, in perfection. All right." And so, but the Jews, when their Messiah came, they rejected Jesus and they clung to the old system. When Jesus died on the cross, at the very moment he said, it is finished, bowed his head and dismissed his spirit, at that very instant, the veil of the temple, right, that led from the holy place into the holy of holies, uh, 30 feet high, 18 inches thick, they say, uh, took 300 Levites to hang it after it had been cleaned gigantic wall of cloth right they say a mule team 20 strong couldn't pull the thing apart but god ripped it we know god ripped it man couldn't have done it but god ripped it from top to bottom signifying the way is open the old covenant is over uh, through my son the blood of my son is paid for all sin you can come to me directly you don't need a priest anymore uh, you're all a, you're now a kingdom of priests uh, as my people but what do the jewish people do they sewed it up they sewed up that veil, which, as we said, was more of a wall of cloth. Uh, and they kept on sacrificing. So what did God do 38 years later? 
he had the Romans come and destroy the temple and tore it apart so completely that not one stone was left upon another. God was saying, enough is enough. My son came. This is blasphemous to continue on in the old system when it pointed to my son in the first place. And now he has come. He's instituted the new covenant, and you're still living under the law. I mean, the law was shadows. Christ was the reality, the substance. And we have to understand that. But uh, Paul said, look, the Jewish people, they have a zeal for God. They're sincere. But they're offering God religion. They're not, they're not coming to Christ for a relationship. And uh, they have developed what some have called a self-styled form of worship. Once Jesus came and the Old Covenant was over, to continue in the Old Covenant was to offer God self-styled or do-it-yourself worship. Now, that has, didn't end with Israel. We see it today. Uh, there's a lot of people that offer God self-styled worship. What do I mean? Well, they don't go to the Bible to find out what God has said, how He wants to be worshipped. Um, they decide it's kind of like a spiritual smorgasbord, right? It's like uh, you know a spiritual version of Sizzler. Uh, you know, yeah, a little a little Christianity, a little Mormonism, Buddhism, a little touch of that. You know, a little humanism. Mix it all together, and you come up with your own system. Look at me. Look at what this is my religion. Well, great, keep it. Okay, uh, we don't want it. But this is a, a do-it-yourself do or self-style worship as opposed to God-directed worship. One is religion, the other is a relationship. And that's the difference between religion and uh, of the Old Covenant or any religious system as compared with the New Covenant, which is a relationship with Christ. But guys, self-styled forms of worship are not according to the truth of God as presented in His Word. He never commanded them, prescribed them, they are rooted in pride and ignorance, really. Even as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4, he said, you, and he's talking about her and her people, the Samaritans, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Their religion was based on ignorance. People get very offended uh, if you challenge their religion. Okay, I understand why. Uh, the problem is Jesus, you know, how dare you say some religions are wrong? Well, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. I'm just repeating him. He told this woman, you and your people might be sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. Right? I mean, um, you're, you worship God in ignorance. We know what we worship, he said, of the Jews. But with regard to worship, there is coming a time and now is when the true worshipers of God won't worship God on Mount Moriah, Calvary, or uh, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, but worship will no longer be a matter of locality. It will be a matter of the heart. And everywhere you are, everywhere your heart is, God will be there under the new covenant, right? So, guys, Revelation chapter 4 has presented quite a scene, quite a scene, a glorious view of heaven. However, down on earth, storm clouds are gathering as the salt has been removed from the earth through the rapture of the church. Of course, you remember how in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus called his church salt. Salt. He said, 
you, speaking plural to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. In the ancient world, salt was a very valuable commodity. Very valuable commodity. The Greeks even went as far as to say it was divine, but that's really not a big deal. There wasn't much the Greeks didn't think was divine. The Romans said that nothing was more valuable than sun and salt. In fact, Roman soldiers were actually paid with salt. And if a man was a lousy soldier, they would say of him, he's not worth his salt. That's where that came from. Now, back in Jesus' day, salt had three main purposes or influences. And each of these applies spiritually to our influences, Christians, upon those we come in contact with. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You can go study, look at our Matthew study where we spend more time on this thing. But I, I, I want to get to the third one, but I, I, I'll give you the first two. Uh, salt created thirst. And we Christians are to make people thirsty for the living water of Jesus. Number two, salt was used to season food. It's our responsibility to add flavor to life as life apart from Jesus often becomes bland, routine, boring most of the time. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, right? But unbelievers will never desire to taste the things of God if the people of God aren't living in such a way as to make people crave for what we have. I mean, there are some people that come to church and they want to throw up. It's like, they don't want... Some churches do not give them a hunger for what they have. And they just, they, they leave thinking, I'm never going to go back to a Christian church again. This is what they're all like, see? The third one, though, is the one I want to key in on. This is the one I really believe Jesus had in mind, what he, what he meant when he said this. Uh, salt retarded decay. Salt retarded decay. Back in Jesus' day, of course, they had no refrigeration, which meant meat would spoil and decay quickly. So how did they combat this? Well, they would take salt and they would heavily rub the surface of the meat, and that would kill bacteria and it would retard decay. It didn't last real long, but it lasted long enough where you could use the meat you had without it, you know, over a couple, three days without it going bad, okay? Look, guys, as we relate this to the church and the world we're in, um, there's a lot of bacteria, if I can put it that way, out in the world around us. A lot of corrupting influences in our society that are causing the decay of morals and decency. And it's getting worse, isn't it? It's getting worse. Uh, we can see the effects of this process of decaying around us. Um, and the high divorce rate that we see, the disintegration of the, of the family, the corruption in government, the number of murders and rapes and other violent crimes and so on. We see our country, our society degenerating. It's decaying before our very eyes. Now, I'm not going to lay all the responsibility for that at the feet of the church. But if Jesus said to us, we are salt, if the primary meaning was that we are to retard the decay of the world around us, which means we have to be an influence for good, and yet the, the society around us is getting worse and worse, we have to kind of 
assume some of the responsibility for not doing our jobs. And I think that it's pretty obvious that as you look around the church today, a lot of apostasy, a lot of worldliness, right? Uh, yeah, we're not uh, the church in general, I don't think. Yeah, there's mega churches and all, that's great. And there's a lot of good mega churches, but there's a lot of churches that are not good. Because it's all man-centered. There's no preaching of the cross, deny yourself, and so on. It, it, the church has become as worldly as the world around them. You know, I mean, when you have pastors and preachers that basically have sanctified greed by saying God wants you wealthy. You know, if you, I, I heard one of these guys say, if you're driving a Chevy Nova and not a Cadillac, you're not being humble. You're being stupid. Because God doesn't want, you, you represent God, you reflect on God. Do you want your kids going to school with, you know, holes in their shoes and ripped up clothes and so on? That's not being humble. That reflects on you. You're reflecting on God when you don't have the best that life has to offer. This is the mentality. And so a corrupt society is bearing witness to the fact that the salt, in other words, the church, is not doing its work. And as Jesus went on to say in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, speaking to his church, but if the salt loses its flavor, or some have said some translations, its saltiness, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If we who profess to be Christians aren't standing up and speaking out against sin, I mean, if we're not lights in this world, if we're not living lives that actually are decaying, uh, just rampant corruption all around us, right? Uh, then, you know, we are not being salt. <laughs> We've lost our saltiness. Uh, and, you know, we're good for nothing. Christianity um, it becomes irrelevant and meaningless if... We are not fulfilling the purpose which Jesus created us on the earth, which is to be uh, a, uh, an influence for good, uh, the opposite of a corrupting influence, which is a preserving influence, right? Um, so many Christians are content to keep their Christianity confined to the four walls of their church where they remain hidden. You know, as Jesus said, you can't light a lamp and then put it under a bushel. What good is it? This is nothing but a big bushel. We come here to get recharged. We come here to learn God's word and to sing his praises and to encourage each other and pray for one another. And then we go out back out into the world and we do what God's told us to be, to be lights, to be salt, uh, to live in such a way as to bring him glory. I mean, it's a dark world out there. When you go out there and you're not swearing and you're not drinking, you're not fornicating, uh, you're praising God. Uh, you know, you got your Bible and you're reading your Bible at lunchtime at work, you know, and or whatever you're doing. If you're not doing that, then people, you know, they may hear you're a Christian, but there's no evidence of that. Somebody once said if Christianity suddenly became a capital offense, could they find enough evidence to convict you? Well, that's a pretty sobering thought to think about, you know. If we only profess to be Christians and we only act like Christians in church, but not in the world, really, because we're afraid of what people are going to think about us or because now some of the persecution is ramping up into physical abuse, which no one wants, no one likes, uh, and I'm not trying to minimize. 
But hiding out isn't the answer either. We have to pray for grace to be what God wants us to be and go out there and just be the, the people God's called us and has made us to be if we're going to impact the world around us. Um, again, guys, I think I really think when Jesus called his church Saul, this was mostly what he was referring to. Yeah, salt you know, creates thirst and salt seasons. That's all well and fine, great. But I really believe in my heart it was this third point about salt, that it retards decay. This is what I believe he really had in mind in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and um, how we are to be a preservative in this fallen world uh, for good, to retard the decay that the world's attitudes and values have in our society, you know, which, you know, we hinder. Uh, without the church here, the world would just go wild. This is why the church hates us. First um, Thessalonians 4, Paul talked about something that was restraining evil. And then when it's taken out of the way, how evil is going to go wild, not having any restraints at all. And I believe what he had in mind was the Holy Spirit working inside the church. And when the church is raptured, as we're going, is now, as we look at Revelation, starting chapter 4, I believe the church has been raptured. Starting in chapter 6, we are going to see the corruption, the, uh, the, the decay of, the, of society all over the world begin to accelerate. I mean, take away what is restraining evil, the church, the Holy Spirit working in the church, not that the Holy Spirit will be gone. He'll, he'll still be here. But the salt is gone. Take away the salt from a society already decaying because of sin. And you're going to have a situation where um, it's going to be so... You think it's bad now. You think it's bad now. Some of our inner cities, pretty bad. Can you imagine... That ramped up by how 10, 20, I don't know, 100 fold? Uh, all over? I mean, once the church or the salt is removed in the rapture, I get, the world is going to begin to degenerate and decay rapidly into wickedness, idolatry, violence. We're going to see this now again as we get into chapter 6. But right now we're still in heaven, okay, uh, with John. And um, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, where John said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. As John looks at the throne of God, he notices something in the Father's right hand. Now that's significant. The right hand is significant in Scripture or in Jewish culture, I should say also. The right hand is the hand of authority, power, favor, and control. The Father said to the Son, uh, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right, Psalm 2? So the, the right hand was always the favored position. All right? And uh, John looks more closely and see, he, as he looks more closely, he sees what the Father has in his right hand, which is a scroll, a very important scroll. If similar to the other scrolls in John's day, it was made of uh, 8 by 10 inch sheets of papyrus. What is papyrus? This was the most common material they wrote on back in those days. 
Papyrus, the sheets of papyrus were made from papyrus reeds that grew around the Nile River. And they would harvest these and they would cut them in half lengthwise, scrape out the pulp, and then they would lay them and beat them flat, let them dry in the sun, and eventually they would weave them together like the uh, like a ba- big picnic baskets are woven together, right? And they would pound that flat, and then on one side they would pumice it with a, uh, a, a polishing stone, and that would become the side they would write on that, all right? And what they would do is they would take these 8 by 10 inch sheets, they would make them into the, and they would sew them together end to end. And as they sewed them together on either ends, they would put these sticks, and then eventually they would roll this scroll up uh, towards the middle. And you've all seen uh, pictures of that, okay, where these scrolls were, you know, rolled together. You have the two spindles, and you roll them out and read what was on the inside. Um, the thing you need to understand, though, was the Greek word for scroll is biblion. Biblion. The same word we get the word Bible from, which in the Greek simply means book. Of course, the Bible is the book of books, the word of God. But John is describing a scroll, not a book, as we would think of a book. Such scrolls were commonly used before the invention of modern uh, style books, which were bound, okay? Uh, These scrolls were made, again, of these sheets of papyrus, and then sewn together, and bound at the ends, sewed together, and then rolled up. And depending on what you wanted to write on this, depended how long it was. The scrolls were rolled out, right? Epistles the size of Jude, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John would all be written on a single piece of papyrus. The book of Revelation, on the other hand, would require a scroll 15 feet long. Book of Isaiah, 45-foot scroll. So, you know, uh, try to carry that around with you, okay? Uh, you know, if you had a... No, no pocket New Testaments back then if you are using this method, okay? But due to the coarse... Remember, one side of the paper was pumiced smooth, the other was left rough, coarse, okay? And uh, they would write, of course, the Jewish people wrote from right to left. We write the opposite, left to right. Uh, and they would write on this 8 by 10 inch piece of papyrus, they would write uh, three columns, using three columns, okay? And then you would write the three columns, and you'd obviously uh, uh, use another sheet. Um, and you would only write in the smooth side, not the coarse, rough side. They didn't typically do that. Uh, however, here we see a scroll that's written on both sides and then sealed with seven seals. Now, from what I understand, only really important documents were written on both sides, like wills or deeds. Roman law actually mandated that um, these uh, Roman wills, which were written on both sides, were sealed with seven seals. Now, Um, I I don't believe this scroll is a will. I believe it's a deed or a contract of some kind. Uh, One scholar, uh, Dr. Robert Thomas, explains this. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, 
This kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. Then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, a release of slave, uh, slaves, uh, contract bills and bonds. Support also comes from Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely resembling this scroll was a title deed that was folded and signed, requiring at least three witnesses. A portion of the text would be written, folded over and sealed, with a different witness signing at each fold. A larger number of witnesses meant the more importance, uh, the more importance was assigned to the document, end quote. Now, let me just say this, okay? Just, I want you to have this going forward. When we read a scroll, we, we all have in our mind's eye what, you know, again, r rolling something up on two spines, right? And you roll it towards the middle. But the Greek word simply means a book. But we, they didn't have books back then like we have. So sometimes these scrolls, even though they're called scrolls, did look more like a book. And here's what they would do, and this is what the author is talking about. They have found these. I have seen pictures of them. Where they, were, where they would write out on, we'll say, uh, one or two pieces of this papyrus paper, something important that related to this document, fold it over and seal it. Then they would write some more, another important section, fold that over and seal it. And keep going depending on how, depending on how many important sections to this document there were. I say that because as we get into chapter 6 and Jesus takes the scroll out of the Father's right hand, which is sealed with seven seals, in our mind's eye we're thinking of something that's rolled up and on the outer edge it was sealed with seven seals. Boom, 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 right down the row. That's not true, okay? Because he'd have to break all of them at one time to start reading what was in that scroll. No, think of this where you break one part of this, one seal, open up the document and read it. Then you break another seal, open up the document further and read that. This is what is being related here, all right? And understand this, just to have it in your mind going forward. All the judgments in the book of Revelation are contained in the seven seals. Because when you get to the seventh seal, that gives way to the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet judgment gives way to the seven bowl judgments. But they're all contained in the seven seals, okay? And that's going to be important as we go forward, but I want to throw it out now for your consideration. Uh, let me just say this, and uh, we'll, we'll bring it to a close for today. But this document was well known. The author talks about uh, how this was a common practice in Israel. The Jewish people were very familiar with this kind of a document, the one that kept folding over on itself and being sealed at different points. And um, we know that it was something that the Jews were very familiar with because of what uh, it says in Jeremiah's book, chapter 32. He gives us a good illustration of such a document. Why don't you turn to Jeremiah 32? We'll read this, and then we'll use it to set up next week's study. 
or I should say not next week, uh, the week after. Okay, because we'll be getting our turkeys ready <laughs> next Wednesday night. Um, all right, so Jeremiah 32. Let's just start to uh, jump in. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you. Now, that would be Jeremiah's cousin, okay? His uncle Shalom's son. And uh, he's going to come to you, God said, and he's going to say to you, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison. Jeremiah is locked up at this time, okay, but he can get visitors, all right? He's in the prison because they didn't like his message, you know. Uh, Babylonians are coming. You better, uh, you better surrender because uh, if you don't, you try to fight them, God says you're going to die. Uh, but if you surrender, you'll be taking the Babylon captives, but you'll live because the people were, by this time, way past repentance. And God says, that's it. Judgment's coming. No two ways around it, okay? Um, but God said to, so Jeremiah was in prison and God says, look, your cousin's going to come to you, Hanamel. He's going to come to you at one point and ask you to redeem his field, to buy it for yourself. Verse 8, then Hanamel, my uncle's cousin, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord and said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. I love this. Then I knew it was the word of the Lord. You know, that gives me a lot of comfort because Jeremiah was a full-on prophet of God. We're talking about one of the, the big guns of the Old Testament, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You know, these were the major prophets. Not that they were better. They just had more to say than the minor prophets, all right? But here Jeremiah says, look, you know, I thought the Lord was speaking to me, but I wasn't sure. And then my cousin came and said the very thing God told me he was going to say, that I knew God spoke to me. I, I take great comfort in that. Because there are times when I think God's talking to me, about, but I'm not really sure. And so I'm just praying for some confirmation and finally something, oh, okay, that was the Lord. All right? So don't get down on yourself if you're not sure at times. Uh, if God's really speaking, just keep praying for more for confirmation. But Jeremiah fell into that category. Oh, then I knew, I knew God was talking. So verse 9, so I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth, weighed, out, weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. Now, let me comment about this for just a second. They were just days away from the Babylonians coming to conquer Judah, the southern kingdom, right? In fact, some commentators think they had already begun to conquer the city and, and, and the, the land of Judah, okay? Uh, and the city of Jerusalem is the idea. Han, uh, uh, Hanamel is basically saying to Jeremiah, uh, hey, buy my land, because basically in a few days it's not going to be worth anything. The Babylonians will take possession of it. So why don't you buy it, Jeremiah? And God tells Jeremiah, you do that. You do that because it's going to be a sign of faith that I am going to bring them back here. It's going to be 70 years, but I am going to bring them back. And by you as my prophet, buying a piece of ground 
when people know the Babylonians are coming to conquer the whole land and they'll take possession of all of it, but by you as one of my servants, my prophets, buying this field from your cousin, um, you're saying to the people, I have faith that God is going to bring us back and we will possess our land again. Very important point, right? Step in faith. So I gave him the 17 shekels of silver, verse 10. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the, and I gave the purchase, uh, purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of whoever, in the presence of Hanamel, uh, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, plural, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. Yes, 70 years. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now what's he talking about? He's got these two deeds. We have the same practice today. Whenever they bought a piece of property, they had a deed, okay? One deed was for them personally. It was sealed, and they then kept it in some safe place. We would put it in a safety deposit box, right? That was our deed. That was the one we kept. And then they had an open deed that was put with the city fathers where it was open to public viewing. If somebody contested, well, did you really own that land? They could go, we would say, to uh, the city hall, we'll say, or I looked it up, uh, where these deeds are kept uh, in Cook County is the Cook County clerk and records office. And so we have a division in, in Cook County where they keep all these deeds and they're uh, for public uh, display. And then that, but see, the kingdom was falling. Judah was about to be totally conquered. So he couldn't put one uh, with the city fathers for open display. So he took both of them and had Baruch bury them in an earth, put them in an earthen vessel and then bury it in the ground which was going to wind up being 70 years before they would return to the land. And um, let me leave it there because there's more I want to say about this, but we don't have time. But I wanted you to get that uh, in your mind at least, that practice, and we'll pick up on that in a couple of weeks because this whole thing really fits into what is going on in Revelation chapter 5. We didn't have this background, we would not appreciate fully what really is going on. And so we'll look at that, God willing, next time. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. It's truth. It's a light to our feet uh, and so on, Lord. If we walk in the light of your truth, we'll never stumble in darkness. We thank you, Lord. Give us grace, Lord, to have an insatiable hunger to, uh, for your word, that we would devour it, that we would... Uh, love it and, and, and want to know it in, in great detail, Lord, that we might live it by your grace. So, Father, keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand.